Amen. Let's turn in our Bibles now to Revelation chapter 9. We're moving through the book of Revelation as we finish up our study through the entire Bible. Come to the ninth chapter, which are the fifth and sixth of the trumpet judgments. You remember as it's going through this time of tribulation and judgments are being poured out on the earth and it started out with seven seal judgments, but each time a seal was opened, something bad happened. And then uh, the last, the seventh of the seal judgments was the trumpet judgments were contained in there. And you go through seven of those, and the seventh trumpet judgment includes the seven bowl judgments being poured out, which winds up this time of seven-year tribulation. So things are really starting to heat up, and when you get to chapter 9, a lot of people get excited because when you study, mon when you study Revelation, you want to see monsters, and boy, you see them here. It starts to really get interesting and, and awful in a lot of ways, too. But I think you'll, I hope you'll figure out that the point of this book and the point of what's going to happen on the earth someday is not monsters. It's not horrible things happening. We've seen throughout that everything that God is doing in the tribulation period is him trying to save as many people as possible. He wants people to come to know Jesus. And so when these bad things happen, the, the motivation behind it is, can people actually turn their lives around? Can they turn their lives over to Jesus Christ. And so as we get more towards the end of the tribulation period, we see that the converts are fewer and further between. Because initially the people who were kind of, you know, settled into their lives, when things started getting bad, they got serious with God. But at the same time though, like you're wringing the water out of a cloth, he's squeezing the last few converts out of the world in order to finally then let his kingdom come and be on the earth. And so, you know, this is what we see happening as, as the tribulation period accelerates. And we see it here, not a bunch of converts, but an attempt to try to let people see, look, life without God is miserable. Don't you want life with God instead? And so we see with the, the fifth angel sounding in verse 1 of chapter 9, I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth, and to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. Now, in the previous chapter, one, uh, one of the earlier trumpet judgments, a star fell from heaven, and it was a star called Wormwood that made all the water uh, polluted and bitter. But this is obviously a different star. Whoever this is, they were given keys in order to open up this place called the abyss. The abyss is called like a bottomless pit. It's a long shaft that goes to the center of the earth. And we know from in the Gospels when Jesus addressed demons, the demons were begging not to be sent there. So we expect and we can see here that a lot of demons are locked up. Now, there are some demons that are around in the world and, and for some reason are permitted to exist out uh, relatively free. But there are a lot of demons, no doubt, that are locked up in the abyss, and this is the place it's referring to here. It's the place that later Satan will be locked up and put there for a thousand years during the millennium, 
and then everything that's in the abyss will be put into the lake of fire. Satan, his angels, and everyone who um, rejects Jesus Christ, everybody who wants to be with Satan. And so probably the angel that it's referring to, the star falling from heaven, rather, is probably Satan himself. Um, He is referred to as being one who fell from heaven. When you read over in Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, later on in the book of Revelation, referring to him being thrown out of heaven and cast down to earth. And so that's probably who it's referring to, but it doesn't say Whoever this is was given access to the bottomless pit, to the abyss. Um, Satan isn't the god of the abyss. Satan isn't in charge of anything um, except what he is allowed to be in charge of, what he is permitted to have. But in this case, he's given permission to release the door to the abyss. And um, so then it says he opened the bottomless pit And smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. And then out of the smoke, you see this eerie sign where the abyss is open and smoke is coming out. Out of the smoke, locusts came upon the earth. And to them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. So out of the abyss comes locusts. Now, ordinarily, when it says locusts, you would just assume these are locusts, these insects that were very common in the Middle East that would come and just trash everything, attack all of the greenery and eat all the grass and everything, and they were a serious plague. As he begins to describe them here, though you have a hard time seeing them as normal locusts, but if you, again, we'll talk in a little bit about what these things are, but... They're initially described as locusts who come out, and and they were given power like scorpions, and we're going to see that entails. Scorpions have a power to bite you and make you really miserable, but it it doesn't usually kill you. And so they had, these locusts had the power to make people miserable, make them wish they were dead, but not to make them dead. And so it says they were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing which would be, or any tree, which would normally be what a locust would do. It was like, no, don't do that. Remember last week the grass had been destroyed, but now it's starting to grow back. But it's, you know, they're told, no, you don't eat grass and trees. I have something else for you. And he says, instead... You can only bother those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So you can't mess with believers. Now, the seal of God on their foreheads would certainly include the 144,000 Jews that we saw earlier who are protected divinely by God, but would probably also include anyone who has accepted Jesus and hasn't been uh, martyred yet as having God's seal on them, God's protection on them. So these locusts are there just to make non-Christians miserable. And they were not given authority to kill them, verse 5, but to torment them for five months. All these judgments probably overlapped, weren't necessarily in clean chronological order, but at least in this case, these guys had the ability to make people miserable for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. 
They will desire to die, and death will flee from them. And then they're described, and this is where you get a little curious as to whether these are really literal locusts. The shape of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns of something like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth, and they had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. They had tails like scorpions, and there were stings in their tails. Their power was to hurt men for five months. And they had as king over them the angel or the messenger of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek he has the name Apollyon, both meaning to destroy. One woe is past. Behold, still two more woes are coming after these things. Remember after the, at the fourth trumpet, they, the angel came out after that and said, woe, 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 there's three more woes. So this is the first of the three woes. Now, immediately you go, oh, this is cool. Because now you have this graphic description, and I hope we can spend like several weeks on talking about what these locusts are. Um, they are interesting creatures for sure. And it's easy to speculate, and I would say most of the time when somebody teaches on this chapter, they'll spend a lot of time talking about what are these things. But here's the deal. It doesn't say what they are. John never asked, hey, what are those things? So I don't think it would be necessarily fruitful to spend a whole lot of time speculating. You can do that on your own. Now, some people believe they're actual locusts that have some weird genetic deformity to them so that they look like this and, and are able to sting with their tail and things like that. Other people look for a more naturalistic explanation and they go, wow, these sound like some kind of modern warcraft. These sound like a, you know, something related to a helicopter that maybe has a tail gunner and you know, that the shape of it aerodynamically is swept back like a woman's hair and you know, sounds like horses and chariots. That, could sound like a helicopter and or you know some variation on this and so you know a lot of people think that other people would suspect that these are just demonic creatures because since they are in the abyss which is the home of the demons that are now locked up makes sense you open up the the door to the abyss what's going to come out you'd suppose the ones that we know are living in the abyss which would be these satanic angels. And it seems like Satan is in charge of them. He is the one who is, is able to coordinate their movements and things like that. So for them to be demonic creatures is certainly a possibility. Um, they could just be some other creatures that were made just for this purpose, and they were done it. But again, you can sit and speculate all you want on it, and if you like imagining that they are helicopters or, or future you know, uh, drones and remote control vehicles that would do damage in this way that would hurt people without killing them, or if you want to believe they're actual locusts, um, it doesn't matter. Here's the point. And, and the point of this whole chapter is going to come around at the end. You'll see, and we will get to it. But the point is, whatever these things are, 
They can torment people and make them absolutely miserable, make them want to die, and yet they are not fatal. They don't make people die. They only make you wish you were dead. So there's horrible torment going on for these five months during the tribulation period. Of that, we are certain. Anything beyond that is speculation, and I enjoy that as much as anyone, but let's separate speculation from what the text actually says. Now we go on to the sixth trumpet. And he says, Then the sixth angel sounded, verse 13, And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. So a voice coming right near where God was. And said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. So again, who are these four angels who are bound near the river Euphrates? Um, a lot, most people would say, well, if it says angel, the safest assumption is they're just literally angels as we know angels. And they could be. The problem with that is we don't ordinarily think of, of normal angels who are doing the bidding of God as just being unleashed to kill a third of the people on the earth. So that's a little unusual. Even more unusual would be the fact that you'd need to tie them up and bind them beforehand. Because if there are angels who are cooperating with God, he would just say, wait, and they would wait. These guys are bound. They're also near the river Euphrates in present-day Iraq. And so you, why would angels be stuck there? Now, another possibility is certainly that they are fallen angels, that these would be some of the powerful demons that work with Satan, those who rebelled with him and were cast out of heaven. This would make really good sense. This is what I suspect they probably are. Um, but there are other people who would just say, oh, these are special creatures that are created just for this purpose, or these are four military leaders. The, you can, your imagination can run wild about what they are. One thing that is easy to see is that this area of the country um, near Babylon, near Baghdad, near Iraq, near the Euphrates River, is an area of the world where all kinds of bad things seem to happen from there almost from the beginning. It was in that area where the Garden of Eden was and Satan came in order to tempt Eve and, then, and Adam as well. And so that was a really bad thing that happened. It came from right there. The Tower of Babel, where people were rebelling against God and wanted to build a big tower to worship um, the stars. And then God dispersed them, destroyed the, the tower and dispersed them throughout the world. That happened in that area. Most of the weird cults and, and magic and everything that we know of as occultism all comes from right in that area of the world. And so, plus a lot of evil leaders that have come up there, it seems like there's something weird in that part of the world in Babylon, and later we're going to see Babylon as being the symbol of everything that God wants to destroy. In our lifetimes, we've seen some pretty horrible things come from that part of the world, no doubt. So if there are some special, supernatural, um, hateful creatures whether they're demons or whether they're something else, that are presently tied up there, 
If a lot of evil flows forth right from there, it would certainly explain a lot, is all I'm saying. But whoever these guys are, when they're turned loose, they just start killing people. And again, you know, release them. And they had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year, and they were released to kill a third of mankind. Now, the number of the armies of the horsemen, they're four guys, but they have a bunch of people working for them, 200 million. I heard the number of them, John said. And thus I saw the horses in the vision. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. Really nice outfits. And the heads of the horses were like heads of lions. Cool. And out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. And by the fire, smoke, and brimstone, these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire, smoke, and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails. They're shooting from both ends. For their tails are like serpents having heads, and with them they do harm. Now let's stop there because that's essentially the end of the sixth trumpet judgment. Now, again, who are, I mean, okay, if these four weird guys from Baghdad are released, now who are the 200 million soldiers, you know, that are coming? And again, somebody says, oh, China, sure. Because years ago, China came out and said, we have a standing army of 200 million soldiers. So everybody who was a prophecy buff got all excited and we're like, this is obviously China. So therefore, China's coming across Asia. Of course, Russia's not going to bother them. They're going to shoot down from the north and go through Iraq and Syria, and they're going to invade. Perfect. Sounds great. 200 million. Too much of a coincidence. Got to be China. Um, however, long after China claimed to have 200 million soldiers, intelligence revealed that they didn't have anything close to that. So whoops, China still doesn't have anywhere, you know, if you've, you know, locked into 30-year-old books and you're still thinking that China has an army of 200 million, sorry, they don't. So now let's go back to the drawing board and go, hmm, who are these? Well, I could do one of two things. I could spend a few weeks speculating on who they are, or I can say, you know what, it doesn't matter who they are, they killed a third of all the people. It's devastating what they do. Now, personally, I'm fascinated by their outfits, and I'm, and I'm okay with hearing all kinds of theories that they're UFOs or they're, you know, whatever country is amassing these forces or whether this is the, you know, all Islam coming in with some, you know, last-ditch effort to just... What difference does it make? Do you get this? In the, in, the, in the trumpet judgment that's blown, the fifth one, everybody who's not a Christian is absolutely tormented. And then a third of all the people get killed by the sixth one. Do you really care who these characters are who pull it off? I mean, I would suspect that they're all probably demonic creatures, but what difference does it make? That misses the point. And that's why John doesn't say it. The soldiers were this, and the, you know, the monsters from, from Iraq were this. And the, no, he goes, Listen, look at what happens, and then we get to the point. And this is what we cannot miss. 
So many times you go through Revelation chapter 9 and get caught up in the monsters and you miss what the point of the chapter is and what it has to do with us. And he says this, but, verse 20, the rest of mankind, two-thirds of the people, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. In other words, they still worshiped the idols, even though they know they don't work. They made them themselves. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries. The word there is a word that means drug use uh, mixed with magic or their sexual immorality, or their thefts. And we look at this and go, for crying out loud, they've been through the seal judgments, they've been through the trumpet judgments, they're saying, whoa, whoa, people want to die and can't die, people who want to live are dying, people are being made miserable constantly, and we go, you stupid idiots, why don't you repent? All you have to do is just go, okay, God, you're right. There are going to be people preaching the gospel during this time, the 144,000 witnesses, Moses and Elijah, no doubt anyone else who gets saved before they get martyred, they get martyred because they're out preaching the gospel. So these people know. I mean, they've had enough information. They've had people share with them, okay, you know what comes next? These monsters that can breathe fire and brimstone. You know what comes next? Out of the ground is going to come all the, you know, it's going to, 200 million of something is coming. And by the way, the 200 million could be a figure of speech, just meaning so many you can't count. But, you know, why don't they turn around? The word repent that's used here, the Greek word is metanoia. It just means to think differently. Think something else. Try something else. Change your direction. Change the way you do things. And we look at them, and it's just hard to envision. Now, you see God going to great lengths to try to get people to repent. Because what they're doing is killing them. It's making them miserable. And you think, how much torment can you take until you decide that you've made a bad decision, you've made a bad call, why don't you repent? So it's really easy for us to look at these people and go, what in the world are you thinking until we look in the mirror and we ask ourselves the question, well, I'm looking at them, but I could ask the same thing of myself. Why don't I change? Why don't I decide that the direction I'm going isn't a healthy direction? And why don't I stop doing the things that are messing my life up? Why don't I change my mind myself? Why don't I change the way I live myself? Because this is endemic in human nature that we don't want to quit what we're doing. We don't want to try something else because somehow we think in justifying ourselves, basically, we don't like to admit we're wrong, so we just keep doing what got us where we are even though we hate where we are. And, you know, often you hear people talking about how great it is that somebody never quits. And this is an admirable quality to be someone who never quits. But it can also be a real trap 
because some people don't know when to quit. They continue doing something when it isn't working, and everybody's going, well, good for you. You're, you, know, you may be wasting your whole life, but um, you just hang in there and you keep doing it. No, it's important to not be an early quitter, for sure. But at the same time, it's important to know when it is time to quit. You know people who have tried something to a ridiculous extent. It's obviously not working, but they still don't know how to let go of it. I don't know if you've ever watched the show um, about, they call it shark, I don't remember if it's shark attack or what it is, but, but it's, they have people who have business ideas, Shark Tank, and they come on the show and there's like five billionaires that the idea is to pitch them on investing in your ideas so that you can be successful. And some of them are pretty decent ideas. Some, some of them are real laughable. But I saw a guy on there the other day who, he was making this little, this little gadget that was kind of cool. If somebody gave me one or sold it to me for 50 cents, it, it hangs on your keychain or on your luggage or whatever, and it's a little container, and he has one for putting contact lenses in. He has another one with, that comes with breath mints in it, another one that comes with gum in it. And it looks pretty handy and everything, but somehow this guy hasn't figured out that you know it's not working. And they ask him, how much money have you spent on this? Because every time he does it, every big campaign he does, he loses even more money on it. And this guy has invested $2 million in this crazy thing of his own money. And they go, where'd you get $2 million? He goes, well, I used to be in real estate. So imagine how his life is going now. And they all just go, there's no way we're gonna, any of us are going to invest in this. A bad idea, it's not working. But when they turned him down, he walks around and then they interview him and he's like, well, I'm not going to give up. I, I know this is a good idea. People want this product. And, I'm, and you just go, you loser. I mean, <laughs> a lot of people I would congratulate because they don't quit. You, you should quit. This is stupid. You need to change your life. And yet we don't. We just continue doing the same stuff that got us where we are. And the question is why? Why don't we get it? Because why we don't get it is going to be the same reason why they don't get it. And I think the key is right there in verse 20. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not change their mind, did not repent of the works of their hands. Let's stop right there. The reason that you don't want to let go of how you're doing things is because what you're doing is what you have invested yourself in. You have designed your life. You have made it the way it is. And just because it stinks, you don't want to admit you're wrong because, hey, I invested in this a lot. It's like people who have a pile of junk in their garage, but they won't get rid of it because, hey, I paid good money for that stuff. Yeah, and it's sitting there and it's not doing you any good. You'd feel better if you gave it away than if you hang on to it just because you've invested in it. And every one of us, where our life is right now, to a huge extent, we are self-made men and self-made women. We are Frank Sinatra singing, I did it my way. So where I am, I put myself here. And the truth is, for me to repent means that I have to admit that everything that I built was stupid, 
was senseless, didn't work, isn't working. And so that's a huge threat because wait, I made that. I remember years ago when I worked in a machine shop before I was married, after work I started dinking around on a lathe and, and I operated a metal lathe and I had never really done a lot of woodwork. So I decided to make myself an end table out of wood. And I turned it all down, designed it myself, and put legs on it and a top on it, and I stained it. And, and it looked like a decent end table that an you know, eighth grader would make, but I was like <laughs> 20 when I made it. And, you know, but I was proud of it because I made it. And, and everybody would look at it and go, oh, did you make that? Nobody ever looked at it and goes, where did you buy that? They were, did you make that? So I get married, and almost everything that I had, I threw away when I got married. But the table, I'm like, no, look at this. And, and Anne put up with it for a little while, and then she figured out you could hang cloth over it, and you don't really see it. And so until every once in a while, somebody would bang into it, and it would fall over because it was too heavy on top. And, you know, but it, it took a long time before we would let that thing go. In fact, we probably let it go one time when I was out of town. I don't know. I don't, I don't actually remember what we did with it, but we don't have it. I'm pretty sure it's not in our house today unless it's covered up by something. But, you know, I would look at that thing and go, but I made it with my hands. And a little voice would go, and it stinks. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, but I made it. And in a lot of ways, that's what our life is right now. It could be stupid and terrible but hey, I worked for years to get where I am today. You're nowhere. Yeah, I know, but it took me a long time to get here. And so we don't want to face the truth, and therefore we're stuck continuing to do what we've always done. And look at these other things besides the idolatry, worshiping stuff. Look at the other stuff in verse 21. They didn't repent of their murder. Why do people murder people. In fact, why do people worship idols? The whole idea is, I want to be in charge. I want things to be, to fit my vision. I want it to be the way I want it to be. I want to design my world. I want to design my life. And so people would use magic in order to try to do that in terms of idolatry, even when they know it's not working. But if it gets bad enough, sometimes you might need to kill someone in order for your dream to come true. Because you don't want to admit that you're the one that screwed your life up. So it must be somebody else. And if I kill them, things are going to improve. Sorcery, magic, pills. The idea that, you know what, there's a shortcut. There's something that I can take that will change my reality. Whether it's alcohol, whether it's drugs or whatever, it's the idea of, I don't like my world and it can't be my fault, so the best way for me to change it is to change my perception or other people's perceptions. And so, a little artificial help. I, I feel depressed, but I don't wanna face the fact that I'm depressed, so if I take a pill, I won't be depressed. Voila, magically, I get my world. You know, you go, you look around and go, everybody who's interested in me is ugly. Take a couple drinks, they start looking hot, you know? It's like, and, and oh, they don't like me, but if I can get them to drink, 
I think I'll look better to them. It's this whole game of like hanging on to control, deceiving yourself and others into thinking that reality is not reality. And there's a way for me to short circuit it so that I can artificially feel okay about the way it is because the only alternative is for me to change and that's off the table. I am what I am and I'm not gonna change. And you know, the same thing with sexual immorality. It's too much work to create a real relationship. It's much easier to opt for cheap, sleazy kind of phony relationships. More now on the internet than anything else. Uh, you know, it's easier to, to be gratified by something on a computer screen than it is to actually go through the hard work of pretending to care about somebody and forming a relationship with them and doing that. So sexual immorality is always the shortcut to how I can get what I want without me having to do it the way you're supposed to do it. And then finally, theft. You have something, I want it. Two things I could do. I can find out how you got it, and I can go work the same way you did, and I can get it. Or, you know, I can wait till you're tired of it, and I can buy it from you for half of what you paid for it. But no, it's easier for me to just take it. It's easier for me to grab it. And this is what makes our world so miserable, is that everybody wants their dream to come true, and they're willing to kill and to drug themselves or others, and to steal, and to uh, use their body in, in whatever way possible in order to bring about their dream. Now imagine what the world would be like with no murder, and no drug and alcohol abuse, no magic, no sexual immorality. You could trust everyone, and you could be friends with somebody and know there's not some hidden agenda behind it. And no theft. You don't have to lock anything up. You don't have to protect anything. Nobody would steal anything. You go, wow, that would be a pretty cool world. That's a, that's a world that everyone would appreciate. But in order to live in that kind of a world, it means you have to give up who it is that you have created when you made you. And all of us are going to have to start to think differently if we're ever going to experience any of that in our lives. And so ultimately, just like the people in the tribulation period, we have our own brand of torment. The way that we live is hurting us. And sometimes it's killing us. And yet, I don't want to let go of what I know. I don't want to let go of what I've worked hard on. You know, I can look in the mirror and just go, wow, I am, my body is in horrible shape. But then I go, but man... I invested a lot in this body, and I'm not going to throw that away. I'm, I'm used to all of my coping mechanisms. I'm used to all the things that I do in order to give myself artificial comfort. And so I'm not going to let go of those. I can look at relationships I have and know that they are trashed. And every relationship I know, if, if there's someone who gets close to me, they're just gone and, and it doesn't work out and I'm lied to and taken advantage of. And, and so I can just go, wow, that's really too bad. Everybody else in this world is awful. But am I going to change? I don't know. What will torment do to you? What will hurt and pain do to you? Now, you might look at your life and say, 90% of why I am miserable is because of what other people have done to me. Well, 
you might be right. Probably, we all probably think that, that math just doesn't add up ultimately. But even if that were the case, the 90% that other people are doing, you can't do anything about. You can still change your mind about what you do with your 10%. You can still change how you respond to what happens to you, and that becomes the key. And that's what God throughout history has called us to. Would you look at the consequences of your choices and maybe change your choices? Can you decide to live a life that's differently than the life that you've lived if you don't like how it's going? If life isn't working for you, maybe you can try something else. And that's what repentance is. And that's what, in this time, in the tribulation, people demonstrate that finally, as much as God is squeezing them and allowing them to live in the misery that they created, they still won't change. And the question for us is, hey, we've been through plenty of pain and torment in our lives. We've seen way too much death. We've seen consequences of bad choices over and over again. So if you don't like where you're at, what are you going to do about it? Are you willing to truly repent, to start doing things differently? Or are you just going to go, you know what I need is a fresh start. So I'm going to keep doing what I always did, the same way I did it. Maybe it'll work better this time. That's not repentance. Repentance is something needs to radically change in my life, and I'm ready for that. I'm ready to do that. And so those people, same answer for them is the same answer for us. How sick are we of what we have made ourselves? Sick enough to actually be open to starting over and doing it differently? Are we, are we pained enough that we can finally take responsibility for choices that we have made? The real question is, will you admit that you are wrong? Will I admit that I am wrong? Because the lack of doing that is what will leave us where we are, and that only gets worse. It's hard to admit you're wrong because you're like, this is what I made, and yet the key to life improving is us changing. There is a thing, and if you, if you look it up on YouTube, if you haven't seen it, it's hilarious, but Bob Newhart uh, did this skit years ago on Mad TV where he was a psychologist, and a girl came in for counseling, and it was kind of a spoof on psychotherapy. But if you look up Bob Newhart, stop it on, on uh, YouTube, you'll find it has millions millions of hits. But um, he sits down and he tells her, you know, you just pay a dollar a minute for five minutes, and then it's free after that. And he goes, he, and so she t starts telling her story, takes a couple minutes, she's doing this and that. And, and he says, okay, two words, stop it. Stop doing what you're doing. And then she goes, well, I, have a, I also have bulimia. I make my, he goes, then stop it. And everything that she would mention, he would throw it back in her face and go, you need to stop what you're doing. And it's really uh, more humorous to watch than it is to hear somebody tell you about it. But <laughs> an awful lot of that is what God is saying to us and to the world. When will you stop doing what you're doing? When will you admit that you've made some stupid mistakes that haven't worked out for you? When will you look at that idol that you spent so much time building and go, this doesn't work, and toss it? 
and start over because that's what God calls us to. I don't know what it is that you're hanging on to in your life that's making you miserable, but I want to encourage you, let go of it. It doesn't matter whether it's, you know, relationships, jobs, habits, whatever it is, are you willing to take everything that you are and put it on the table and go, okay, God, what do you want? I'm willing to say that I'm wrong about anything. Now, what do you want to do? Now, I know a lot of you are thinking, I know right away what it is. It's my spouse. Now, you know, <laughs> give that a little time, you know. Um, if you're blessed with an ex, and, you know, that's a constant reminder of what's wrong with you because their voice still resonates in your head. But, no, the truth is we're talking about you. We're not talking about something, someone else. People are who they are. The best way that you can engage with them is to change who you are and to be willing to truly think differently and to repent. And God gives you that opportunity unless you just love your life right now. If you love the way it is, you don't have any reason to repent. But when the pain gets worse, please keep asking yourself, is it time for me to think differently? Is it time for me to turn around? Is it time for me to try another approach? And that's all God's been ever trying to tell us. And that's what he wanted from these people in the tribulation. But by that time, most of the people who were going to get saved had been saved. And it was just a tragic tale of people who didn't know when to quit. No one to quit. Admit when it's not working. And it's never too late to start doing things differently. Now, doing things differently isn't going to fix all the mistakes you've made in the past. But doing things differently will, will change the mistakes that you will make in the future that are going to make your future even, even more miserable than your present. So stop it. Quit. Be open to being wrong. Be open to changing the way you're doing things to see how it develops. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for this reminder. and Help us to look beyond the monsters to see the monster that's in all of us, that self-will, that stubbornness, that arrogance that makes us so certain that we're right that we become victims of everyone else. And the one thing we could change, we don't. Tragic when that happens, but Lord, help us to wise up and help us to admit that we are the ones who brought ourselves to the place that we are right now. And if we want to be somewhere else, we're gonna have to listen to you and start to really do things your way. Help us to hear your voice. Help us to be honest with ourselves. And help us to know when to quit and give up in our fight against you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all.